You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. Yeah, so today I've got the portfolio manager for the Sturgeon Capital, an Iranian fund, um, Kian Zandaye. So um, I wanted to hop on the phone and have a chat with Kian. Uh, some of you might recall Clemente, who have chatted with in the past and recorded final conversations with him, who has been running Sturgeon for well, probably about 10 odd years now. Yeah, nearly um, 11 years. Yeah, and so... Um, more recently, you guys launched a fund directly investing in Iran, and that's really the topic of the conversation today. So let's let's dive straight into that. Let's uh, first give give me a you know, the quick and dirty on Kian. Sure. So um, I guess I'm, I'm one of those weird people that started their invest started their investing pretty young. So I started buying stocks when I was 13, 14, um, and that developed. And around when I was 18, I launched. I wouldn't say launch, started a small fund investing money for friends and family. I mean, it's very cliche, but I guess the methodology which always stuck and made sense to me was kind of the value, uh, the value way of investing. Um, so I was always kind of investing and managing money. Went to university, went to business school. The two broad areas, which, which for me, I mean, I felt my knowledge lacked were actually understanding what what goes on behind the scenes in the sense of market infrastructure. So I joined the, the London Stock Exchange for a while and basically got what I wanted from that in terms of knowledge. The second area coming out of 2008 was, although I studied economics and, and observed it from a distance, uh, from a, coming from a value background, I guess uh, macro is always seen as, as, as something you largely ignore and you deal with. But I thought that was probably quite an ignorant way of going about it. So. I wanted a better understanding from a macro perspective, understanding how to foresee things and how to uh, analyze and understand dynamics that were happening. And so I joined um, uh, Rubini Global Economics and, and worked for a while under Nuno Rubini. Um, and there I, I covered emerging market equities. And it gave me, gave me great insight where you're speaking to on a daily basis, thought leaders, decision makers within these countries. And on the other hand, you're speaking to real investors that uh, take your advice as to, as to actually implementing it. And I, I'm originally Iranian, although uh, born in Britain, and I've been going to the country since I was a kid. And I'd, I'd always wanted to do something within it, um, seeing what was happening politically in terms of sanctions potentially being lifted. It was a perfect opportunity where I came across Sturgeon, who were also looking to launch a fund. Uh, and we came together and... Uh, we came to where we are now, where we where we have a fund and we're actively investing in the country. Uh, I mean, I'm there at least a week, two weeks a month. So f- for me, it's the kind of the perfect combination of doing something I enjoy, which is investing, and operating within a country of uh, my heritage. So uh, it's a nice combination. Fantastic. So let's let's dive straight into this sort of quick and dirty of Iran. We've got sure. this, you know, this country which now is opening up, the sanctions are being lifted. There's a lot of political uncertainty around Chairman Trump and what he may or may not do, which none of us really know at this point in time. But there's, um, I could run off a whole lot of stats on 
you know, why this is such an interesting country, but yeah. I think it's actually largely misunderstood by many people insofar sure. as it's, you know, when people think about the Middle East, then A, there's a, there's, you know, <laughs> firstly you think of sand and then you think of you know, guys <laughs> running around with Humvees and um, bullets and so on and so forth, yeah. which in certain areas is true. But I think from a, from an economic perspective, there's this belief that it's essentially petro and it's a petro energy region yeah. in so far. And, and that is true largely of places like Iraq. That's wildly, I wouldn't say wildly untrue of Iran, but it's, it's yeah. representative. So yeah. let's kind of dig into that because we've got sure. you know, this country, which is, it does have the largest hydrocarbon reserves. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what I think is the second largest gas um, yep. well known. It is so it's significant in that size, but there's yeah. a whole lot more to it than common uh, Egyptian yeah. habit. No, I mean if you if you think about Iran, I mean the, the sanctions which were to some extent have been in place since the revolution, that is 1979, obviously have been a curse, but to some extent have been a blessing for the country uh, in the sense that it's it's forced it to become self-sufficient particularly in the past decade before 2015, it, I mean, the, it, it was basically impossible for the country to do business with the rest of the world. So any basic goods, any infrastructure, any manufacturing that you would normally, for the powers of comparative advantage, trade with other countries, the country had, was forced to, to do itself. Uh, and it's to the point where, you're right, if you could combine hydro, hydrocarbon, that is, gas and oil, Iran has the largest reserves in the world. But today, income derived from oil is less than 12% of GDP. A large part of it comes from manufacturing, services. Services is, is, is the largest kind of revenue generator for the country. And if you look at manufacturing in particular, Iran has a real chance of being a manufacturing hub in the Middle East. It has a wide range of resources beyond hydrocarbons. It's the largest zinc reserves in the world that produces copper, it produces steel, it produces iron. It, had, it has mines which produce, for example, sulfate sodium. Sulfate sodium is one of the important initial products you need to produce detergents and a lot of white goods. Uh, and you combine that with, with very low cost of labor. So manufacturing labor costs in Iran are nearly on par with Vietnam to the point where it can be a, a low cost producer in the region, not only in the region, but for the world. And now that sanctions have been lifted and there's a real export potential uh, that's being utilized. There's something I'm just going to quickly interject with there, Kian, which is to say, because you know, I've lived in Asia, I've lived in about seven different countries now, but you know, and people often talk about labor cost. Yeah. And what I think they often miss is labor cost relative to skill set as well. So you've got a country, for example, exactly. like Philippines, right? Philippines have very low labor cost. Bangladesh has a very low labor cost. Yeah. But what you've got consequently at the same time in those countries is an extremely low education rate. And so yeah. you, you, your type of labor cost is also an important component behind it. And that's what to me is fascinating about Iran is that yeah. this is one of the most educated countries on the planet. I mean, it has in science, for example, it's, uh, it, it exceeds Korea, right? Yeah. It exceeds, I mean, it's, I think it's about 10 steps ahead of the United States. Yeah. It's, it is one of the leading, it's ahead of Finland, it's ahead of 
you know, <laughs> some of yeah, the, no, it's crazy. So, so you've got this highly skilled, low cost labor, and that's quite yeah. different to low skilled, low cost labor, which you have yeah. in places like the Philippines and Vietnam. Yeah. So, uh, but I'll, I'll shut up now and I'll let you carry on. Well, it's a function of two things. I mean, you have to remember that Iran is a, is a very large country. It's a population of 80, 80 million people. And to add to that, 65% of that population is under the age of 35. As a culture, education is very important in Iran. So the majority of that population under 35 are educated. They've, been, they've had a degree or they've got a master's or PhD. And I think, for example, the U.S. annually, I'm not, don't quote me on this, puts out 400,000 engineering students a year. Iran beats that. The, the Iranian cabinet itself has more U.S.-educated PhD students than the US, the U.S. cabinet itself. Um, I mean, I, I go there quite regularly. You, you often see PhD students driving cabs, and that, that's, where, that's where the problem comes in, in that mm. every year you're churning out a large part of uh, a large educated population, but there isn't the capacity there yet to absorb them. And so now hopefully with higher levels of foreign investment, with higher revenue generated from, from, from countries' uh, GDP, uh, a, lot, a large part of this underutilized educated population will start to go into work and it has a positive feedback loop that once you start seeing growth, it, it starts really uh, leveraging itself to, to, to further it. Yeah, you make a good point there. And then with respect to that opening up and essentially FDI, which is at, at the moment inconsequential, even though those sanctions have been lifted, yeah. the, the actual both the gross and the overall numbers are, are meaning, fairly meaningless. And so yeah. that presents two questions. One is that, you know, why? Why is it that it's taken so long for, for, for this capital to, go, to come into the country, even though sanctions have been slowly lifted and, and have been opening up? Yeah. Um, what is the reticence to, because it's, you know, essentially reticence for capital coming in. Yeah. And two, what, if anything, can be done or looks like is on the horizon for that to change, right? Because one of the things that I've always been cognizant of growing up in Africa is that you can have these environments which on the face of it, you look at it and you think, wow, that is just such an amazing opportunity, but it remains an amazing opportunity in a complete basket case for a number of of different reasons. And things can can take a lot longer to to eventuate than um, than your own risk tolerance or your own time frame will warrant. Sure. So, so, I mean, a common issue both in terms of FDI and FPI is, is, is the banking issue. So last year in FDI, I think the total amount that has actually been uh, transacted is about $12 billion. And for a country that has a GDP of about $500 billion, it's a, it's a very small amount. The more ridiculous number is when it comes to foreign portfolio flow. So the total market cap of, of the, the country's two stock exchanges is about $150 billion. Yeah, the total amount of foreign portfolio flows that came in last year since sanctions lifted was $35 million. So it's absolutely negligible. It's pennies, basically. And like I said, the, the main issue is the banking issue. That is, if you go to any high street bank, to any main corporate bank, and say, I want to send money to Iran, they, one, they will send, say no, and they'll probably freeze your account. So for our fund itself, we've had uh, two, two or three subscriptions which have gone through, I guess you can call mainstream banks, and that bank has blocked the, blocked the money being sent to our fund because we invest in Iran. 
So that's mm -hmm. a huge issue. And so you're, you're forced to work with second or third tier banks, which themselves don't yet have the infrastructure in place to do a direct, say, swift payment to Iran. Um, now, the reason for that is, if you look before sanctions lifted, banks were in some ways doing business with Iran, and they got slapped with extremely heavy fines from the US. So you, you look at BNP Paribas, you look at Credit Suisse, yeah. they were fined in the billions for doing business with Iran. So you put yourself in the seat of a compli compliance officer today, say, okay, sanctions have been lifted. Legally, that there should be no issues. But there is still a risk. The US still has, has leverage to, to do so. Now, how much money do I make from doing a few transfers to Iran? Oh, I say it's in the single the digit millions. Yeah, the rest of the So that, that, that's one thing. And banks are looking for uh, explicit clarification from Treasury in the US to say, no, go ahead and do business. Now, the, the US has done that to some extent, but with Trump now flexing his, uh, his muscles, uh, as I like to say, again, it puts, uh, it puts a spanner in the works. And the second issue, specifically when it comes to the FDI, is the risk of snapback sanctions from the US. Mm -hmm. Now, our view is that the probability of that is very low. And let's say in the worst case scenario that it did come about, there's, there's, there's a dispute resolution mechanism within the JCPOA, that is the agreement that was made for sanctions to be lifted, that it would be extremely difficult for sanctions to come back in place. And if you look from the Iranian perspective, it's been, um, it's been clarified from the Atomic Agency that everything that they have said they would do in the agreement, they have done. Uh, it's arguably the U.S. effectively, which is putting pressure and hasn't done everything to make it easy to do business with Iran. Uh, I mean, if you, if you look in terms of continental Europe, uh, they're, they're crazy about Iran. It's, it's a large country which uh, re requires consumption, it requires, it's, it's underutilized, it, it needs a lot of products and services which continental Europe can cater for. And you go to Iran, a lot of the planes are full of European businessmen, hotels are full of European businessmen, and slowly, slowly, things are starting to progress. You're starting to see small to mid-sized businesses doing business with Iran, and now the larger companies are creeping in. So you have Total, which is likely to close a deal to, do, to explore a large gas field in Iran. And once these large deals get signed, it, it trickles through, uh, specifically in the aerospace business. You look at Boeing and Airbus, which have got um, exemptions from OFAC to, to sell up to over 100 planes to Iran. That one, from a business perspective, opens doors because assuming they want to get paid, it has to go through normal banking channels. But it creates leverage on the Iranian side to say, well, we're doing this business with you and it's creating you jobs, we're paying you. Carry on. Let the other sectors come in. Um, and so, I mean, it started from a very low base, but it's slowly, slowly you're starting to see things uh, progressing. Which brings me to something else that um, I've noticed with countries which are essentially shut off from capital, whether it be from sanctions or whether it be from some other aspect. And I actually noticed this in Africa or in South Africa where we had sanctions um, due to the apartheid regime that was in place. And you're correct insofar as saying that it helps the country to become more self-sufficient and more robust in certain respects. However, what it also does is when you open that up, you have, at times, there are essentially monopolies within that confined space that could get created. Sure. Yeah. And you then open up those monopolies to competition. And, yeah. you know, I watched large 
very profitable companies literally vaporize within like a yeah. two or three year time frame. And, and money managers that had always looked upon them as being these stalwart sort of you know, blue chip enterprises that you, you could be confident in putting your capital into uh, lost their shirts. And so, uh, you know, I have no doubt that the same mechanism will exist in Iran. Yeah. So how do you go about, essentially, what's your investment strategy? How do you so, see this forming, this, this capital shift that is potentially coming, the opening of, um, of those of the Iranian market and how that actually impacts on companies on the ground, you know, who wins and who loses? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you make an, this is an extremely good point. And a lot of people ask us, what are the risks of investing in Iran? We think this is probably the most underestimated risk. That is, the business landscape which the country has seen for the past 10, 15 years is not the one it will experience tomorrow. And just to give an example of, you look at the high level, the macro factors which Iran, which are positive for Iran, uh, growing middle class GDP coming out of basically a recession, uh, a young population. And as, as from a high level, you say, okay, well, let me look at those dynamics, the sectors which most make sense for, for one to invest in, I'll say, consumer goods, food, and FMCG. And there, there are companies in Iran which have operated in this sector which have been very successful. But they're, mo they're most prone to disruption. To give you anecdotal evidence, uh, Henkel, which is a German conglomerate which has been quite uh, proactive in Iran for quite, quite a while, in 2007, they took control of a local detergent manufacturer. At that time, its market share was 5%. Today is 40%, and a few months ago, they made another acquisition of another detergent company. So if I'm a Unilever, if I'm PNG, it's very easy for me to come and disrupt these sort of sectors. Mm. And we basically break our investment themes into three categories, and one of them is around this. So where we say we look for companies operating in sectors which have a comparative advantage by being in Iran. Uh, one, of the, one of those examples, again, it's not a glamorous industry, but it's glass. Uh, Iran today is probably one of the cheapest places in the world to produce glass and will probably remain so for a while because you need three main things. One is silica, which is sand. As you mentioned in the beginning of this call, there's a lot of sand in the region. The second is gas. Again, Iran has large gas reserves. It's pretty cheap to access. And the third is labor costs. And as we discussed, manufacturing labor costs are very low. So we have one glass company in our portfolio, and you look at its average operating margins for the past five years, it's between 45 and 50%. You compare that with the large glass producers in the West, and there's between 5 to 10%. Yeah, there's it's a no way for them. margin business in, in most. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But in Iran, it's very high margin. So there's very little risk of disruption. Uh, so you're protected on a business front from the downside. Right, on because outside, the, you, the only component, if you will, in like you talked about the um, German company before, you yeah. see they have presumably capital, which in, in a country yes. is somewhat capital starved that's yeah. a, that's a big uh, component of the business exactly but if you take exactly. a glass and, business, yeah. it's it's not it's not if you're running 50 percent margins you can self-finance you don't have to you're not so exactly and, and the, the thing about cons the consumer side of it is a lot of it is based on goodwill that is brand value and intangibles and when you're a localized country you always look to abroad for what the best brands are so if they can come in and they could even sell at a loss for a while to build market share it's impossible for Iranian companies to compete with that. Right. Right. So, you, so one of the themes is looking for kind of core businesses which have extreme uh, cost benefits 
that can one keep their market share domestically, they can actually start to export. And you have an out of the money option that is, if I'm a large Western glass producer that wants to access the uranium market, there's no reason for me to come and set up a factory from, 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 from zero. I will just come and acquire this company. It has a distribution, it has everything in place. So that, that's, that's one theme. The second theme is to say, well, from a high level, what do we think is a high probability of happening in Iran? And then play, playing on the second derivative of it. I mean, it sounds fancy, but what practically an example of that is, if you look at Iran today, it's one of the largest petrochemical producers in the world but it's producing significantly in the capacity, roughly around 60%. Now, the government has mandated a pet, petrochemical output triple within the next five to 10 years and for it to be a large part of GDP growth going forward. So we can say kind of the, the high probability event or the, the fact here is that in five years, petrochemical output will be much higher than where it is today. But as an investor, you ask yourself, well, well how do I invest in that dynamic? You can invest directly in the petrochemical producers, but one, a lot of them are state-owned, so you have operating inefficiencies. But also your revenues are, are hard to forecast. They're out of your control. They're based on um, market, market factors. So what we've done is we've invested in the, the, the utility provided to the petrochemical plant. So if you look at the south of the country where the majority of these plants are located, uh, it's too expensive for them to source utilities themselves. And by utilities, I mean gas, electricity, water, nitrogen, oxygen. So you have one, one monopoly asset, which effectively outsources to all these companies. And uh, it, it itself is operating below capacity, around 65% of capacity. So once petrochemical output goes up, naturally the value of the spec capacity will also go up. But what, what's great about it is it prices everything in dollars. So you have an implicit currency hedge. It has no debt, which is very rare for you to provide. And you can start buying it around under four and a half times free cash flow and it paid the recent dividend yield of 18%. So it's kind of that secondary dynamic, which, which we like. Actually, can you dig into that? Um, you, you mentioned the dividend, and yeah. Iranian companies have these monstrous dividends, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which, you know, it's, it's, it's ironic because we've, we're living in a yield-starved world, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where investors have <coughs> started treating bonds um, They've been investing in bonds for capital growth yeah. and equities for yield, which yeah. is insane. It's ironic, yeah. yeah. No, um, I mean, in Iran, it's actually, when you look at it on the face of it, it's attractive, but once you dig in, it's actually not the best thing. So the basic, the basic structure of it is around 10 years ago in Iran, you had a large privatization program where a lot of government assets came to the market. Now, because of sanctions, there wasn't enough funds or capacity to pick up these effectively IPOs. Mm -hmm. So what the government did was they set up uh, holding companies or, or pension funds, which effectively took on debt to buy into these IPOs. Now, the result of that is a lot of these companies in itself are very good companies. You look at the return on capital is above 30, 40%. But because the holding company is indebted and they, they don't produce the cash flow themselves to pay off the debt, they force the subsidiary companies to pay off nearly 80, 90% of their earnings in debt. So hence the large dividend yields. Uh, but if you look at, if you take these companies in isolation, and as I mentioned, you look at the return on capitals, effectively, if, you, if the company has an opportunity to reinvest, the compounding of them reinvesting and growing purely through capital gains 
far outweighs the return you would get by just picking up a dividend yield. Right, sure. Okay, so let me just throw rocks at that because presumably yeah. this is essentially like a burning match um, yeah. insofar as at some point those um, the payouts and the dividends actually reduce the debt burden so to the point where a company is now in a position where they can actually make their own uh, judgment. Yes, exactly. So they're fully capitalized yeah. and then they could, they could go out and actually raise debt that yeah. is at, on more favorable terms um, and grow their equity, right? Yeah. So you, you pay out, I don't know, say 5% dividend, 8% yeah. of whatever it happens to be, but certainly yeah. not a 20, 30, 40% dividend. Yeah. And you then get, um, you know, you get that equity multiple where it's not actually difficult for your company to go to double, you know, yeah. in terms of share price to actually double every year. Exactly. Three years. Well, you're right. I mean, some companies are already there. Um, some, some companies are nearly there, but the issue is that for a lot of companies, it's crippled them because so yeah. interest rates, I mean, in Iran, deposit rates are nearly 20%. Lending rates are in the high 20s. And I don't care how good yeah, so entrepreneur, you, how good entrepreneur you are. Yeah, you can't make money. You can't compete with, <coughs> with zero risk on a 20% um, CD. Exactly. And exactly. most businesses, even if you're running 30% margins, you've yeah. got a, it's a different risk profile. Exactly, um, exactly. Uh, and, and just picture, when, when, you, when you're forced to pay a large part of your earnings out, you don't have to, you don't have to recapitalize. And you recapitalize for taking on short and debt at high rates. So one opportunity. It's very difficult to grow market share. Exactly, because mm -hmm. you're, you're you're constantly worrying about just maintaining the business. Right. Yep. I mean, one opportunity is. I mean, it's not public, but in, in private equity, you could go in and just buy buy it and <laughs> take the debt out of the business. <laughs> you know, you, you're just running ahead of me. I was just yeah. I was going to be my next story. <laughs> is there anybody out there that's actually doing private equity? Because okay. you know what you'd want to do is you want to go out and raise a couple of hundred million dollars and essentially yeah. go and do buyouts. Yeah, I mean, so private equity in Iran, in my view, is is binary. You could either be extremely successful or fail. You mm. will fail because for two reasons. One is to obtain good assets, you either have to pay the, the price you'll have to pay up will not compensate the risk you're taking, or you're buying a company which is in the most terrible state. And then it's, it's very difficult internally to operate the company, to fire people, to, to manage it in a way which you, you would normally want to manage to get to where you want. Now, there have been cases where they've actually been pretty successful. One is, uh, we, we know of a group in Iran, which are a family, they're, they're industrialists. And they bought a pretty much nearly bankrupt company from, from, a, from a bank in Iran, uh, which produced paper. And it wasn't paper from cheese, it was paper from sugar canes. Uh, and they bought the company in the single digit millions, but had nearly 80 million in, in debt and a bloated workforce and was producing well under capacity. And uh, in about three or four years, they, um, they managed to reduce the debt from 80 million to 20 million. They reduced the workforce from 750 to 150, sorry, 250, and they tripled output. And last year, they listed in the local market for $65 million. Yeah. So that they made a, a ridiculous amount of money. But that's because they, they had the local know-how. And, and all, of that uh, debt, all of that debt reduction was presumably paid out by... Um, yeah, for, just for the company's cash. Cash flows, yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And yeah. now the company is exporting, and it, it's, it's the biggest paper producer in the country. Uh, so these opportunities do exist. So that brings another question. What's corporate governance like there? 
So, because I mean, that's, that's essentially what you're dealing with if you're doing private equity and yeah. in that sort of situation, you, you, you've got a legal system that's got to be yeah. uh, you know, in place for you to be able to make the changes that you need to be able to make. Okay. Um, you've got to be able to deal with you know, corruption, corporate governance. Sure. So what does that look I like? I mean, one of the reasons why we've, we focus predominantly on public equity is that within that arena, corporate governance is actually pretty good, much more than what people perceive. So, uh, I mean, in the U.S., companies have to report earnings, corporate announcements on a, on a portal called Edgar. In the U.S., in, in Iran, you have something similar where, in fact, I would argue that the, the announcements or the information you get from companies is much more detailed than what you get in the Western world. And that companies have to release quarterly earnings, quarterly extremely detailed guidance. And let's say, for example, you release guidance one quarter, and the next quarter you want to increase it by 25%, either upwards or downwards. You have to give a justification to the regulator in, in a lot of detail as to why you are doing that. So you have a lot of information, and the, 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 the management and the shareholders are held accountable as to the performance of the company. In private equity, you, you don't have as much protection um, in that <coughs> a lot of the business owners are family-owned, they've owned the business for generations. And when it comes to due diligence, they're perplexed. They're like, why, do you have to, why do you have to do this? We, uh, they don't even know what information to provide. So the work you have to do in private equity is, is, is much more than what you do in public equity when it comes to due diligence and, 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 and fact-checking. And so for us, it makes our life much easier by just sticking to public equity, where we think the opportunities there are, are large enough for us to focus our attention to that. Sure. So what is, what's corruption like in Iran in general? Um, I mean, relative to, to other countries, I mean, Sturgeon looks at in Central Asia, I would say it's, it's much better. It's not I, I, by no means that I'm, I'm saying it doesn't exist, but I, I wouldn't call it what you call it, what you would see of vanilla corruption that is paying people off to do stuff. But I would call it corruption through inefficiency. Is it that is like, is it on a par with India? Or is it on a par with Thailand? Or no, I, I mean, I would say like this. This is how I would how how I would describe it. In that, you have a semi-government company, which, if it was in private hands, it would be a great company. But the CEO gets a, a base pay with, with no variable pay, and all all he cares about is pleasing his stakeholders. That is, he may go to a supplier for this. He he may sell to that person. He may not sell to that person. And he, his job is basically focused on pleasing the stakeholders. And I see that as corruption in itself because you're not allowing the company to operate in its most efficient state. And if you take it across the system, you have massive inefficiency. Yeah. Massive inefficiency is probably a strong word, but you, have, you just have broad, broad range of inefficiency. I would say the corruption is, is, in, in, is in that level. It's not as clean in your eyes as you would, you would, you would normally expect from, from an emerging or frontier market country. Right. Understood. Yeah. So, you know, um, from that perspective, it's certainly not as bad as Africa. Well, no, no. Africa is not a place, of course. No. And, and, and the country is, is very, very serious from the governmental level to promote foreign investment. So you have Foreign Investor Protection Acts. Uh, as a foreign investor, you're, you're, you're catered to very well. Uh, and, and they will basically go out of their way to help you out. So they, they don't want the country to be perceived or seen as a country where corruption that is existent or uh, there's no framework for getting things done. Back to a couple of the numbers here. We've got, I was having a look at this the other night. I was having a chat with another friend who's actually interested in, um, in Iran. You, you probably know um, the gym right. that uh, Asia Frontier Capital 
Right, yeah, Thomas. Uh, yeah, Thomas. So, you know, you've got, what's the, what's the P? It's about six, I think it is. Yeah, it's a bit higher now. It's about seven now, seven okay. trillion. Yeah, the market's yeah. kind of gone up because it's, you know, had that recession last couple yeah. of years. But again, you've got real interest rates that are sitting around 20%. I mean, they come down from roughly 30, I think it was. Yeah. Um, but they look like they're probably heading more towards 10 than they are to go back up to 30, which yeah. kind of gets you a multiple back on your equity. So yeah. As, yeah. as you get those um, those cap rates going from, you know, 30 to 20 to 10, then you'll, it's, it's difficult to, it's difficult to conceive of an environment where PE stands seven. Exactly. You, you touched on a good point. This is, this is the biggest catalyst we see for Iran. So to give a bit of background, in around 2012, when sanctions really intensified, the currency devalued by nearly 80%. What naturally followed that was a rapid increase in inflation. So inflation went from the mid-teens to the to high 40s. Again, what the central bank, naturally what would they, they would do to combat that is to raise interest rates. So interest rates went from the mid-teens to the high 20s. And they actually did quite a good job of reducing inflation. So redu- inflation fell from 46% to what now is the last point-to-point reading of around 6.87%. So inflation is kind of running around 7 now. Yeah. So we run 300 basis points over that. We can sit at 10 and still be comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, but you go back to last year, and everyone was saying, well, Iran is the cheapest place in the world. It's trading in a P of 5, it was back then. Yeah. What, what that ignored is what you mentioned. It ignored domestic opportunity cost. That was well, anyway. one of those things. You kind of need a catalyst for things to change, right? Just because exactly. it looks cheap. Like, shit, look, let's take a look at Democratic Republic of the Congo. It's, yeah. it's very cheap. Is it going to get less cheap? Probably not. Yeah. They're probably heading yeah. for, a, for another war because the <laughs> current president, Kabila, is just basically, he's in the end of term and he's turned around and he said, well, it's actually not the end of my term, I'm staying. And, yeah. and <laughs> so... <laughs> It's like Africa's is going to go back, or DRC is just going to back go back to doing what it does, you know, repeatedly every every dozen years, which is to shoot and kill each other. So, yeah, just on that point, okay, so we could see then potentially Kian domestic capital going into yeah. equities out of deposited capital. Exactly. What about coming back to FDI? So you've got this environment where. You know, I'm sitting here managing the fund. I say, how do I get into how do I get into Iran, you know, in, yeah. in, in an easy fashion where I don't have to, you know, go get on the ground and do private equity deals or, or, or invest in, you know, someone else's fund or whatever it is. How, how does their capital come in? And, of course, one of the things that should be taking place as a consequence of the, listing, the lifting of sanctions yeah. would be including Iran into, you know, the MSCI. Yeah, index as a you know, or or any index. Um, sure. Is any of that in the works to take place? Because I could see that as a cap. Because look, it's just liquidity flows. No, of course. When you got your listening in London at the moment, so when you're sitting in the square mile and you're um, working at Deutsche or Barclays or any of these large bracket firms, you go, oh, we'll put a, we'll put one percent or two percent into into Iran or just into the MSCI, right? Right. Um, and that that component within the MSCI is, I don't know what I haven't done the math on it, but presumably, yeah. look, it's a it's a pretty large yeah. market cap. It's probably around about four or five percent of the MSCI, which is yeah, um, I'm well, guessing. I mean, but so if that happens, 
suddenly you have these massive liquidity flows that start pouring in just through, exactly. through an index. Is that? Yeah. You know, so so we, was a, we, was, we was at a stock exchange uh, a few months ago, and we specifically asked about this. Um, they, what they said, they were, they, they've already started negotiations with a few index providers. Uh, now I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I don't think they will start with the likes of MSCI or S&P or FTSE, but Renkap did quite a good study early last year, which effectively looked at the dynamics of the Iranian market, be it free float liquidity market cap, uh, and they did an estimate saying that Iran could be between 25 to 30 percent of MSCI frontier. And if you looked at roughly wow. 30, 30 billion tracks that index. Remember I said $35 million is the amount of foreign investment in Iran. Okay, so, so what? <laughs> 25% yeah. of that index is $9 billion. So you'd have $9 billion going into, what's, what's current market liquidity rights? About $150? $150 million daily, yeah, average. So $150 million daily. Um, what's, uh, what's, what's total market size? About, about $150 billion. $150 billion. Which is increasing. I mean, last last year, Iran had 23 IPOs of large companies. Right. Um, this will continue. Yeah, that would have a significant impact. Yeah. yeah. The, the the key catalyst is access. Once once normal banking transfers happen, mm. I have no doubt that within a very short time, Iran could be part of an index, and you'll start that that if if it wasn't for the banking issue, I'm sure you'll have above a billion in Iran. We wouldn't. We would not be one of the handful of people investing in Iran. Okay, so here's a question. What would, if you and I, Kian, decided, fuck it, let's go and set up a bank in Iran, what are the impediments to that? Is it actually quite a controlled quasi-state type industry or is it one where competition will be allowed to flourish? Sure. If if the latter is the case, then presumably you could have maybe not US or maybe not European dipping in, but almost certainly Russian, Chinese banks would come in and say, we can do this um, and basically set up an infrastructure much more quickly um, and more efficiently. And if the SWIFT system, you know, that could happen in a relatively short time frame. Yeah. I mean, Russian and Chinese banks and and some small German and Swiss banks are doing this today, albeit probably not in, in, with with the utmost focus. Mm. Uh, The the analogy I give is effectively with SWIFT, um, the two sides are attached. It's like, I have your number but I never call you, mm. right? They don't talk to each other. Yep. And what you're we've, we've looked at this, you, you could set up a bank. Uh, it doesn't have to be in Iran, outside, outside of Iran is which is key, where that bank is connected via SWIFT and it just transfers payments to Iran. That, yeah. in, in theory, is viable and it could be, it, it's doable. No one has done it yet. Well, actually, in, in truth, what they should do is just kick SWIFT to touch because it's a fucking horrible system. <laughs> use a blockchain. No, look, true. I mean, no, no, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that. <laughs> so, um, and then elephant in the room, sanctions and yeah. the US. Uh, what's your gut feel take? So, sure. um, I mean, you're on the ground. You mentioned that there's a lot of Europeans that are interested. Yeah. I was on the phone the other day with, um, and, um, you know, Marty. Well, yeah, um, I know Marty. From Afraz. You know, we're discussing, um, it's sort of like he's moving his business to Singapore, right? Uh, because essentially you've got the Asian component, aren't, they're increasingly moving away on a geopolitical sort of basis from the US. And, yeah. and look, this isn't just Trump. 
this has been taking place pre-Trump for a while. Um, yeah. So the, you know, the trend is in motion yeah. and it's, it's actually, this is probably just an accelerant to uh, Asia pack essentially yeah. being Asia pack non-US. Yeah. So that seems to be the area that one would be um, a sourcing capital from in order to invest in Tehran, but also yeah. in terms of JVs and other sorts of relationships. What is your sense of, sanctions and then that kind of geopolitical framework with respect to Asia, Russia, Europe, the US? Sure. I mean, I could talk about this with you for days. I mean, I'll start with sanctions and then the geopolitical. My humble view is that when it comes to sanctions, thinking of it as a foreign policy tool where there are a number of counterparties which are signatories to, to sanctions, it only works when the whole group is united against it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Both in its implementation, both in its withdrawal. We, we, when it came to its implementation, everyone was united and it worked against Iran, uh, arguably. Um, but when it's come to its withdrawal, it, it, hasn't been the, it hasn't been that case. And what, when that is the case, in, where, in the sense that you have Europe, which effectively is withdrawing from sanctions, and it has done fully, mm. but the U.S. hasn't, the U.S. loses credibility in using sanctions as a foreign policy tool going forward. And you see that within Europe, the day, the day after or, or the week after Trump was elected, the European Union made a statement saying this is a, 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 an agreement amongst parties and we will not pull out of it. Total, again, based on their investment, which I mentioned to you, they made a press, press release saying this has no impact on our investments. Um, I mean, on the ground, yes, of course, the sentiment has, been, has fallen slightly. When it comes to the market, the market fell only about 1.8% the day after. It hasn't been a huge thing. And I'm just going to quickly interject there. This, just, sure. this, this is an interesting because you know, I've run a venture capital firm and then also um, you know, speak regularly with hedge funds and running a fund at the moment. There's a, to me, there's a bit of a disconnect in mm. terms of those two groups. The yeah. fund managers, and you know, I came from investment banking world and um, where you are now, yeah. The guys sitting in London or Manhattan or uh, Frankfurt, if you will, that are managing money, they're often looking at almost face value stuff. And they'll say, oh, no, the, the Trump administration's kind of either pushing back on this so we won't deploy capital. But if you yeah. take it a step further and you, and, you, and you move into that private equity field, yeah. Yeah. total, yeah. and we all know this, are these large companies are tied to the political bodies. They have to be. There's lobby groups. There's like nobody goes in and places capital um, into any of these countries without that. Exactly. Without being underwritten, right? And so they get underwritten by these agreements. And so when the Europeans come out and they say, look, you know, and sanctions get lifted, I'm the the average fund manager that's sitting in um, New York or, yeah, San Francisco, I don't think necessarily looks at it and says, well, hang on a second, even though Trump says this is a, a lot of rubbish and we don't like the Iranians and they're all terrorists, I don't think they fully understand that there's a, it's a lot more complex to actually pull out of that. Exactly. Because you've exactly. got these, it's been underwritten. And to then, essentially what you'd have is the French government would have to mm-hmm. say, okay, you know, Trump, we agree with you, we're going to have to pull out. Totally, yeah. I'm going to, Crucified, exactly, exactly. Um, as are a number of other uh, businesses that have been, you know, riding on the back of that underwriting. 
Yeah. Um, and so then that actually becomes a political risk in France. And so, you know, if you're, if you're the elected party and you've underwritten something and then you turn around and you basically destroy your electorate, exactly. you'll never get voted back in again. So it's, it's a political suicide mission. Um, you're completely right. And Iran, to some extent, has tried to leverage on this dynamic. Of course they would. I would. By, by going straight to the big players. I mean, you look at Boeing. Uh, Boeing is, has one of the strongest lobbies in the U.S. About six months ago, they only had a license to sell 16 planes to Iran. I think it was two or three months ago that license got a, a upgraded to be able to sell 106 planes. Mm. Now, let, let's even go back to Trump. What, what was Trump's narrative when he ran his, in his campaign is, let's create jobs for the U.S. I think they, they, they put a number where just through this deal, but Boeing working around, the U.S. creates 10,000 jobs. There's another statistic which I can't remember, which came out of the number of jobs the U.S. has potentially lost from not doing business with Iran for the past 20 years. And when, when it comes to it, like I said, continental Europe is all over Iran. You at the U.S. lobby part is strong. It makes sense at some point for them to go to the government and say, hey, we're in a competitive world. Specifically, Trump should understand this from a business perspective. Mm. Iran is an area where we can gain market share. Europe is taking it all away from us. Why shouldn't we participate in that? And you could see that narrative being easily sold to, to the U.S. people to say, hang on, okay, we may have our political differences, which Iran is saying the same. Iran's foreign minister said in, in Davos, we have political differences with the U.S., but from an economic perspective, we have no issue from what we're working with. And the same holds for Europe. So what does it look like in Asia? So Asia, I mean, Asia has actually been in Iran for a long time. During sanctions, China helped Iran out a lot in terms of uh, payments and selling oil and sending uh, basic human goods, such as pharmaceutical goods, food. So China's been in Iran for a while. Um, and their the One Belt, One Road initiative, is quite, Iran is included within that. So they're very active in the infrastructure space. For example, investing in ports, investing in petrochemical plants, uh, and stuff like that. Uh, the same with Korea and same with Japan. Uh, so Iran, the trying to the alliance is trying to form, is with 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 Asia and with Russia, uh, not against the U.S. but because they see that in their view is the, the future economic block of the world. Uh, and if they they have allies within within that. And the, the, the hand is stronger. Well, Ken, you've given me a lot to think about. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure we'll be hopping on another call to follow up yeah. on, on more than happy to on any of these issues that we talked about. Um, yeah. But really, thanks a lot for your time. It's no, been thank you. Thank and, you very much. Um, we'll we'll chat soon again. Great. Thank you very much, Chris. Thanks very much for tuning in. To receive more great subscriber-only information go to capitalistexploits.at